Exodus chapter 10. Let's go there. Exodus chapter 10. I'm going to read the chapter. You guys follow along with me. Exodus chapter 10. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up from you out of the ground, and they shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We will all go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We will go. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind to the land on that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. And they were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locust as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, 
I have sinned against the Lord your God, against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind, and he took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. And there remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God, and even we do not know what we must serve the Lord, how we will serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, you, sh you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Father in heaven, we ask that you would. Lord, reveal your gospel to us, Lord. Reveal the truths of your good news. Lord, even on the pages of this story, of this history of the Exodus, Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Spirit. Let your gospel have entrance and let it change us and transform us and conform us to the glorious image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Exodus chapter 10, we've come to, Lord, the end of these plagues. In the ninth chapter the last plague was the plague of hell that God brought upon Egypt. And that plague destroyed much of the vegetation, much of the greenery that was left in Egypt. It told us how it destroyed certain crops that were in the field. And there were some crops left. But at the end of that plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Actually, it says that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But remember, God is hardening an already hard heart that Pharaoh had. Pharaoh didn't start out with a soft heart and God hardened it. Pharaoh started out with a hard heart. And if you follow these plagues, you'll see that Pharaoh hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. When we get to, to uh, Exodus chapter 8, we see that then it says God hardens his heart. And from each subsequent plague after that, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Now we come to the, to the plague of locusts. 
and God is bringing judgment upon the land of Egypt. I want to draw your attention to the first verse of this chapter. And it says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Go to Pharaoh, that I may show these signs of mine before him, that you may tell your son and your son's sons the mighty things that I have done that you may know, that you may know I am the Lord. Pharaoh did not know. Pharaoh hardened his heart, closed his eyes, closed his ears, would not know. God says, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart that I may show these signs of mine before him. Why? That you may tell your son and your son's sons, the mighty things that I have done. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord. Go, that I may show, that you may tell, that you may know that I am the Lord. God has given the same command or the same commission to us today. This is the great commission. Go, that I may show, that you may tell, that you may know that I am the Lord. We must never forget, this is very important, church, as we read this account of the Exodus, as we read the entirety of the Bible, we must never forget that the most important person in the story, in any story, that is including our own, the most important person in the story is God. Pharaoh is not the most important person. Moses is not the most important person. The children of Israel, that nation is not the most important people. The most important person in this story, the most important person of any story is God. And this is why we will see God make a statement to Moses that's later recorded in this account that we call the Exodus and used by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans to affirm the doctrine of God's free and sovereign grace. God declares in Exodus 33, 19, then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God speaks these words to Moses when Moses says to God, please God, show me your glory. And this is God's response. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What an odd response to show me your glory. But that is what God declared to Moses. I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name to you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I choose to have compassion. In other words, God was saying, Moses, I'm going to grant your wish, but I want you to understand right now that when I make my goodness pass before you, when I reveal my name to you, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. You have not earned this right. You have not 
worked your way up and found some kind of merit in my sight, then I'm going to give you this privilege. I want you to know, Moses, that this is happening to you for no other reason except for the free and sovereign grace that I will bestow upon you. I will choose to have grace upon you. I will choose to pour out my compassion. I will cause my goodness to pass before you. I will proclaim my name to you. That happened to Moses. God hid him in the cleft of the rock. And God passed by. That has not just happened to Moses. That has happened to us. God has done better than hide us in the cleft of the rock and let his goodness pass by and allow us to see his backside. God has redeemed us in Christ Jesus. He has brought us into Christ, made us one with Christ, imparted the very life of his son into us and joined us and brought us into a union with him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and made us, He has made us one with Him. And how did you come to that place? Did you earn that? Did you work for that? Did God see how hard you prayed? Did God see how long you read the Bible? Did God see how much you begged and pleaded with Him? No. Because had you done all of that, had you read the Bible and memorized it from front to back, had you prayed 23 hours a day, had you done all of that, there is not anything you could possibly do to earn the right to be given what you have been given in Christ. There is not anything we can do. It is God's grace. Paul takes and he expounds on this in his letter to the Romans. It's recorded for us in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. And Paul quotes from the book of Exodus And Paul asked this question, what shall we say then? He asked this question after saying that those twins, Jacob and Esau, being born, having done no good or evil before their birth, it was determined the younger would rule over the older. For Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Paul says, God did this that the doctrine of election might stand. Why is that important for us? Because we cannot, we must not think in any way, shape, or form that we have somehow earned what God has given to us in Christ. Because if we think that, if we believe that we have somehow earned it, if we have somehow merited it, if there is something we have done to get it, then there is going to be something we can do to lose it. And and if this is a partnership, And if it's only my 1% plus God's 99%, then I have a 1% stake in this partnership. And God says, nuh-uh, you have no stake in this partnership. I own it 100%. I am the full partner. I am the only partner. I am the sole proprietor of your salvation. I own it and I own you, lock, stock, and barrel, for I bought you. I redeemed you with the price. It was through the precious blood of my son. And what do we say to that? We say the only thing that we can say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Paul writes, For what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. He said that to Moses, remember, right before he caused all of his goodness to pass before him, and before he proclaimed his name to Moses. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills, he hardens. As you read the account of the Exodus, you may find yourself being disturbed at how many times God says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. That disturbs a lot of people. It disturbs them so much that they do all kinds of gymnastics with the Scripture, trying to make it mean something that it doesn't appear to mean. But it's pretty straightforward right here. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did it repeatedly. And why did he do it? He just told us why. To demonstrate his power that his name might be known in all the earth. And I'll remind you again, as have I done, and as I have in weeks past, here we are, over 3,500 years after this event took place, in Taylor, Texas, a town that didn't exist in anyone's mind except God's 3,500 years ago. And what are we doing? We are talking about the Pharaoh. We are talking about God's dealing with this nation. We are recounting and proclaiming the mighty deeds that God has done, and we are making his name known. God says, Pharaoh, this is why I raised you up. This is why I have made you what you are, that my power and my glory would be demonstrated, that my name would be known in all the earth. If we don't understand our place in God's story, we're going to miss the point of all that God has eternally purposed. And we will be upset by these verses that talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And we'll say things like, well, that's not fair. No, I'll tell you what's not fair. What's not fair is that Jesus paid the price for our salvation. Because your heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was not born with a harder heart than your heart or my heart when we were born. We are all born with hard hearts. We all deserve the wrath of God. But God does not give us all what we deserve. In fact, Jesus took what he did not deserve so that we could escape what we do deserve. If we don't understand our place in God's story, we're going to miss the point of all that God has purposed. We're going to miss his joy. We're going to miss his peace, his love. And most sadly, we may miss him. To understand our place in God's story is to understand God's place in all things. What is God's place in all things? He is the Lord. This is his name. This is the name he declared to Moses, I am. I am the Lord. To understand our place in God's story is to understand that all God has purposed 
is bound up in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to begin to understand that our salvation is much greater than ourselves, our individual lives, and our personal problems. Jesus did not only die for you and me, He died and He rose again to redeem the world. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world, we have one word for world in the English language, but in the Greek language, there are numerous words that are translated world. There is a world, there is a word that we get our word cosmos. Anybody remember? I mean, if you study astronomy, astronomy or astrology, I don't recommend astrology, but I do recommend you study astronomy. Look at the stars. If you ever walked out on a bright, clear night and you see the stars, you see the moon, you're looking at the cosmos. You're looking at the universe. It speaks of the entire created order. And when Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus literally says there, for God so loves the cosmos. In other words, God loves the creation. Jesus didn't just come and die for me or you or a few people. Jesus came and he died for the entire creation. And that's good news. That's good news for us. Because how horrible would it be if God redeemed us, but he didn't redeem the creation? And, and if we don't, read the Bible correctly, we may have this mistaken thought that we're just going to float around for eternity in the clouds or in space, and it's going to be really boring. I mean, what are we going to do floating around all the time? No, the Bible says, if we read the Bible, it clearly and plainly teaches that we're going to live on the earth. We're going to live right here on this earth, and it's going to be a new a newly created, a newly refurbished, it's going to be a new creation, doesn't mean that it's a new planet. What it means is that it's going to be delivered from the curse. It's going to be delivered from sin. And all the things that we see that are the effects of sin will be no more. To say that it will be perfect is an understatement. We can't even imagine what it will be like. Jesus didn't just redeem us. He redeemed the creation. And our salvation is so much greater. This is why Isaiah wrote that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Our salvation is greater than we know, and that, that should move us to seek to know. It should move us to know at the deepest level what God has done in redeeming us and making us His own. It should move us to seek to know and to feel and experience His redeeming love, to seek His glory, to give ourselves completely over to Him and to His eternal purpose in Christ. Our salvation should move us to make known to our children 
and our children's children and to all the mighty things that God has done. The knowledge of Christ, the gospel, is the greatest and most important thing that we will ever impart, not only to our children, but to anyone. We spend much time, much money, preparing for careers and opportunities for our future and for our children's future, but how much time should we spend to equip and prepare ourselves, our children, for eternity? There is no earthly career, there is no opportunity that we can prepare for that will mean anything if we are not prepared for eternity. Preparing for eternity is not something you do in a conversation, it's what we will spend the rest of our life doing. Church is not some place you have to go, it's where we get to go, it's what we get to be, and there's nothing greater than we, that we can become than to become his people, his bride, his body, his church in the earth. And we can't do that alone. We do it in community. We do it by his grace. When we come to understand that we have been saved by God's free and sovereign grace and by no merit or action of our own, we should realize that we are his, that we belong to him totally and completely, because he has redeemed us totally and completely by his blood. We have nothing to boast in but the grace and the mercy of the cross. This is what Paul writes in his letter. He said, I am a Jew of Jews. He said, I have every reason to boast, but all of that is rubbish to me. What I thought was so important, what I invested so much time and energy in, I realize has become nothing And the only thing that matters is to know Christ. Oh, that I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, I have nothing to boast in except Christ and his cross. If we do not understand our place in the story, we're going to have problems. God has created us. He brought us into this world. He brought us into his story. He caused us to be born. And in his grace, he causes us to be born again. He extends his grace to whomever he chooses for his own purpose, according to the good pleasure of his will. God has made you part of his story. And we must not forget that he is the most important part of that story. And as we begin to realize the truth As we begin to recognize our place in his story, it's because of his grace at work in our life. As you come to know your place and God's place in all things, we are commanded to live like we know it. Paul writes this in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, if you are children of light, then walk as children of light. We see in this account of the Exodus that God is preparing his people and at the very same time, he's judging the idolatry of Egypt. God never does two separate things at the same time. He's always doing 
one thing simultaneously. He may do it in a bunch of ways. But while God is judging Egypt, he's preparing his people. While he's preparing his people, he's judging Egypt. He's not running from one thing. Oh, let's see, what plague am I on? Is this eight or is this nine? Oh, wait, wait, I got to run over here and prepare my people. No, that's not how, that's how we operate. That's not how God operates. This is how Paul can write in his letter to the Romans, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Because God is ever working his purposes together in all things. We'd never have to wonder about that. So we see God preparing his people, and he's preparing to bring Israel out of Egypt, but that that preparation didn't begin in Egypt. We begin the book of Exodus with Moses in the wilderness coming upon a burning bush. That's not when the preparation began. The preparation began long before then. Whatever God is working in your life right now, whatever he's preparing you for right now, didn't start right now, didn't start with your circumstance or your situation, whether it be pleasant or whether it be difficult, it started long before then. It began long before Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh. It began in eternity, in fact. It began before God said, let there be light. Preparation took place in the triune Godhead. It took place in the dirt of a freshly created earth, in a garden, and then outside of a garden. It took place in the land of Ur in a man called Abram. It took place in a land called Canaan. And then it took place outside of a land called Canaan. It took place in Egypt. And it wasn't God following his people around doing things. It's that God has created everything for his purpose. And we can't see and we can't know how it all works together, but God does. And God is constantly, eternally working his purpose. It's taking place right now all over the world in every tribe and tongue and nation. God is pouring out his grace and he is preparing his people. In this story, we also see God bringing judgment against Egypt and her gods. Egypt and Israel are both prone to idolatry. Don't think that Egyptians are the only idolaters here. We're going to see as we go through the book of Exodus that Israel is prone to idolatry. She struggles with idolatry all of her history. Israel, the nation, will struggle with idolatry throughout her history. She will be tempted to go back to Egypt time and time again in many ways. And like the temptation for us to go back to the world, to go back to our own familiar ways, that's what we do. We don't go to geographic places. We don't go necessarily to physical places. But in our minds, in our hearts... In our souls, we go back to the familiar places and the familiar ways. And that is just as sinful as the Israelites wanting to go back to Egypt once they had made it into the wilderness and been delivered from their bondage. That struggle 
is a struggle with idolatry that we all struggle with. We think it's easier to go back to Egypt than it is to go on with God. Or we want to go with God, but we want to go with God on our terms. But remember, God never makes deals. He's not into partnerships. He's not our co-pilot. He doesn't negotiate terms. It is His way and His way only. Any other way leads to places that we will not want to find ourselves. But God desires to deliver His children from the bondage of sin and idolatry. And God has a way for us that is not our way, but the the writer of Hebrews calls it a new and a living way. That God has made a new and living way for us to come to Him. To come into His presence. We struggle with these things because we are all fallen humanity. And we are fallen humanity until God makes us new again. And how does God make us new again? He causes us to be born again of the Spirit. He gives us a new heart. And He gives us a way to renew our minds. This is what we need to do. We need to pray that God would, in His grace, break us and make us new and not stop until we are conformed to the image of the Son. Ultimately, that's not up to you and I because this is the promise that God makes. It's recorded for us in Romans. This is the destiny of every believer to be conformed to the image of the Son and ultimately that we be glorified. You and I aren't going to do that by our strong will. We are going to do that by the grace of God. And in spite of our will and our willingness or unwillingness, God will, by His Spirit, bring us to that place of glory. So when we get to this chapter, we see the eighth plague. It's the plague of locusts. And remember, God sends the locusts and they eat everything up. And there's something interesting when Moses comes to Pharaoh and he tells him, let us go. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let you go. In fact, he even threatens Moses. And he says, you better have God with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Beware evil is ahead of you. And the servants of Pharaoh tell him, don't you know that Egypt is already destroyed? How long are we going to deal with this guy, Moses? Let's just just get this over with. Calls Moses back in, and that's when he makes this threat. Because Moses says, it's all or nothing. We either all go, men, women, and children, and the livestock, or God's going to keep bringing his judgments against you. And God sends the flag. He sends the locust. And they destroy the land. And in the midst of this destruction, Pharaoh calls for Moses, it says in haste, verses 16 through 20. And he confesses his sin and he asks forgiveness and he asks that Moses would just this one time pray and ask God to remove only this plague right here. And Moses did. And the Bible tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh does not let the children of Israel go. 
That brings us to the ninth plague. And remember, every third plague is an unannounced plague. So God announces the locusts are coming. Moses tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens his heart. He does not let them go. And the ninth plague comes, which is the plague of darkness. It's unannounced. The ninth plague is significant just as the first plague was. The first plague, remember, was the plague where he turned the water, the water of the Nile into blood. And the Nile was very important to Egypt. And they worshipped that river. There was a God over that river. And in that very first plague, God shows Pharaoh and all Egypt that your gods have no power. That you are worshipping and looking to powerless, lifeless, dead things. You need to repent and you need to look to the Lord, the creator God. And we come to the ninth plague, this unannounced plague, and it's the plague of darkness. The Egyptians worship the sun. The sun God was thought to be the greatest of all gods. Some even believe that he might have been the creator of all the other gods. He was the patron God of the Pharaoh. And this plague was directed against the most powerful deity of all the Egyptian gods. And the Bible says that God didn't just bring darkness, but it was darkness so thick, so heavy, that men could not even move from their places for three days. Now stop for a moment and just think about that. If you were in your house, and you couldn't even get up and go to the restroom, to relieve yourself. You're stuck in your place for three days, you and everybody else in your nation. And the darkness is so thick that it can be felt. It's like a, it's like a covering that's smothering this nation. Just like the locusts were so thick you couldn't even see the earth. It doesn't mean that there were just a few of them. It means they were so Deep, They covered everything so deeply inside and out that you could not even see the ground. There was not one bit of green left in the land of Egypt. And here's this darkness for three days. And in rendering the sun god powerless to even shine, Egypt had no one to go to. Egypt had no one to turn to. There was no higher power to look to. Three days of utter and complete darkness covered Egypt. Darkness so thick that it could be felt. But in the land of Goshen, where Israel lived, there was light. And once again, we see that God made a difference. Israel didn't make a difference. Egypt didn't make a difference. God made a difference between Egyptians and Israelites. And God said, in Egypt... There will be darkness so thick you won't even be able to move for three days, but in, in the houses of the Israelites in the land of Goshen where my people live, there shall be light. Ephesians 5.8, the Apostle Paul writes, You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. When Paul says you once were darkness, I want you to think about the darkness that fell in Egypt. I want you to read that, and I want you to think about how the Bible describes that darkness. And I want you to think about what Paul declares about who we were before 
the grace of God in Christ Jesus captured us. He said, you once were darkness, and if you think the darkness of Egypt was heavy and oppressive and immobilizing, the darkness you and I were before Christ saved us is magnitudes greater than the darkness that fell in Egypt. We do not realize the magnitude of our sin. We do not realize the hardness of our hearts. We do not realize what it truly means when the Bible says you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We once were darkness, but God made a difference. That's what Exodus says. God made a difference. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians, but God made a difference. You are now light in the Lord by His grace. Walk as children of light. The plague of darkness revealed the true nature of all that are not children of light. Apart from the Lord, we are only darkness. In Egypt, three days of darkness before the Passover foreshadows three hours of darkness before the death of Jesus on the cross. And it is by His death that we enter into it a new life, it is by his death that we enter into light and become his children. The Egyptians know that they are powerless before God. So think about this. We go from the very first plague where the water becomes blood. It's a major annoyance. It's a major inconvenience. They've got to dig wells. Then we go to destruction, to utter devastation, now the locusts have eaten everything and the land is destroyed to complete darkness and ultimately final death when we get to the 10th plague. The death of the firstborn, we're going to see that the ultimate end of all of this is final death touching everyone in Egypt, even the highest and most powerful and godlike Pharaoh. Pharaoh could not deliver himself so if God is graceful to us, He will strip away all that we may look to that is other than Him and give us eyes to see that He alone is our hope. And the greatest deliverance that we can experience is the deliverance from self and self-sufficiency. The illusion of self-sufficiency soothes us into thinking that we need no one or nothing but what we can give ourselves. Pharaoh was self-sufficient, or so he thought. We see that at the end of this, at the end of this darkness, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart again. Pharaoh will not let the people go. He commands Moses to leave his presence with a threat on his life. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. The words of Pharaoh were prophetic, and Moses knew that he would never see Pharaoh's face again. Moses knew that God would now bring about the deliverance of his people and the demise of the Pharaoh. And there was nothing Pharaoh could do to stop the purposes of God. And this is something that we need to understand, church, that there is not anything man can do to stop 
God's purposes. In our very first lesson today on church history, if you paid attention, you'll remember that he said from 500 to 1,000, to 500 to 1,500. From 500 to 1,500, for 1,000 years, the number of Christians in the world basically was static. There was great growth for 500 years, so much so that it spread throughout the whole world. Then for 1,000 years... Some, of those, some people call those the dark ages. For a thousand years, there was static, no growth. There are people today that would lose their minds over that and think, my gosh, the church has failed. God has failed. It, it's none of it's true. Jesus said he was going to build his church, but I guess he changed his mind. How do we know? Because we have people saying the same thing today. The church is in decline. Islam's on the increase. We're going to become a Muslim nation. What if we do? Has nothing to do with whether God's church is victorious or not. Nations come and go. They have since they were put on the earth by God. Kings rise, kings fall. Nations rise, nations fall. You think Rome in her heyday ever thought she would be something just read about in the history books? No. This is why we better know not only our history, but we better know our Bibles. Because if we base God's success in building his church, if we base it on what the news says and what the newspapers write, if we base it on what men say, we wouldn't even be having this conversation today. We'd have long given up. But it's not based on us, it's based on God. We don't make the difference, God makes the difference. And God in his grace uses us to make his difference. That's the beautiful thing about it. God does nothing without a purpose. There is no cosmic accidents. There's no distracted moments for God. There's, no, there's not a hand ringing God up in heaven, unable to stop certain events. No. God is in complete control all the time over all things. God is good. He is inherently holy and righteous and loving he is also just and the judge of all. There is nothing that can stop the eternal purpose of God. But like Pharaoh, we often fight against the purpose of God. We think we are struggling against man when in reality we are struggling with God. Like the Apostle Paul, we kick against the goads, but God in His grace has a way of bringing us to the place where we can no longer resist his grace is sufficient, and his will to accomplish his purpose is irresistible. If God has chosen to have mercy on you, if he has saved you by his free grace, then stop resisting and allow God to have his way. Say, but I don't like God's ways. I don't like what he's doing in my life right now. Stop kicking against the goads. Embrace the purposes of God and invite Him to have His way in all things because we, we can only see snapshots. We can't see what God is doing. Not only downstream, but we don't even take the time to see what God did upstream. James writes, let patience have its perfect work. God is patient, we are not. Have you ever noticed that? 
How many of you have ever gotten impatient with God, thought it was past time for God to do what he needs to do? God knows how patience will have its perfect work in us. Thank God that he is patient. And he patiently allows his purposes to work out in our life. This is what James writes in his letter. It's recorded for us in James chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Don't be double-minded. Don't seek your own way. Embrace God's way. Embrace God's purpose. If you lack wisdom, then ask in faith, and God will give liberally without reproach. That's his promise. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the hope and the promise we have in Christ. We cannot do this on our own. Nor were we created to go alone, but it is by His grace in His community of believers giving witness to His glory in the world. If God is dealing with you, be thankful. And if you don't know whether God is dealing with you or not, let me just tell you, He is. Whether you can feel it or not, He is. If you can't feel it now, just wait. You will. He's preparing things right now that you'll feel and you'll know. And that should be comfort for us. That shouldn't be cause for alarm. That should be cause for comfort. So yeah, but you don't know what I'm going through. I don't have to know what, I'm, what you're going through. That's irrelevant whether I know what you're going through. The point is God knows what you're going through and he's the one taking you through it. It doesn't matter whether anyone else knows what you're going through. It's that we know God knows and he is the one in his grace taking us through all things Working all things together for good, whether we can see it, whether we can understand it, whether we can believe it or not. If God is dealing with you, be thankful. It means that he has chosen to pour his love into your heart and pour the abundance of his grace into your life. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world and his grace is sufficient. How do we know? Because those are his words to us. He promised, he made us this promise. John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He told the apostle Paul, recorded for us in 2 Corinthians, after Paul asked three times, please God, remove this thorn from me. Please, Lord, remove this from me. Please, God, I'm begging you to remove this from me. And the response of Jesus to Paul was, Paul, my grace is sufficient. After that, Paul says, I will boast in my infirmities. I will boast in those things that I once 
complained over because they remind me of His grace and of His goodness. I want us to get ready to come to the table. And as you prepare to come to the Lord's table, come looking to Christ as the only hope that we have and the greatest hope that there is. A hope so great that it will fill us to overflowing and carry away all the things that would tempt us to lose hope. This table reminds us that our hope is not in the ordering of our circumstances, but in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has overcome the world so that we can have the assurance of hope. This table also reminds us that our hope is not solitary. We don't have a solitary hope. We have a hope that's much greater, but our hope is communal. For our hope is in Christ and in his body. The body he gave, the body that he gave up on the cross so that he could raise it up and make it his church. You are that body. You are his church. And we are invited to come to his table. A table of grace. So church, as you trust him, as you look to him, and if you are not, I urge you, I beg you to look to Jesus, to call upon his name and know that if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. For from the mouth, confession is made, and from the heart, one believes unto righteousness. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let the faith in your heart come out. Come to Jesus. Come to the table. My charge to you today is really very simple. So that you embrace the preparation that God is working in you. That you invite Him to strip away those things that you may look to that are other than Him. And pray that He give you eyes to see that He alone is your hope. That you would know God's purposes are unstoppable. That you can fight them or you can join them, but in the end, His purpose will stand when all else fails. Finally, I charge you to count it all joy when you fall into various trials and to let patience have its perfect work in you.